Yes, uh, thanks, Corey. I am here, and uh, welcome, everybody. We'll open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for a lovely day. We thank you for an evening where we can gather as a, a group of believers, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and look into your word again. And we pray for a blessing for each one of us as we think through and consider what you have for us tonight. We pray for guidance and wisdom in all that's said and done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you probably know we're looking at two Psalms tonight, Psalm 61 and Psalm 62. And I'm just going to work our way. We'll read Psalm 61 and work our way through that Psalm um, and then do the same thing with the next one. So uh, I'll, I'll start by reading it through. You've probably read it, I'm sure, this week, but it doesn't hurt to refresh yourselves. Psalm 61 says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then will I ever sing praise to your name and fulfill my vows day after day. So this is a psalm that isn't specifically attributed to David, but I think most people consider it uh, as written by him, and I certainly would be in that camp. And so maybe unfairly I may mention his name as I, as I go through this, and I, I do say that uh, we don't know with absolute certainty that it was him, but certainly as we read it and think on it, it, it would certainly appear to be a psalm of David. And as we look at this, this specific chapter, uh, this specific psalm, we see and uh, we are aware that, you know, David encountered some pretty crazy things in his life. And if, if it was him who wrote it, we can see why he would be writing perhaps the way he, he wrote this psalm. Or uh, if he did write it, you know, he, we know that he experienced the wrath of a jealous and perhaps mentally unstable king who wanted to take his life. And he was running for uh, a long period from this man, even though God had ordained him to take over the kingship at some point in time. We know that he had a, a murderous son who was after him for a period of time and and uh, wanted to do away with him and take over his kingship. And, and so I don't think any of us here today have had quite such uh, lives where we've we've lived through things like that. But certainly each one of us have had or experienced tough times in our life, um, perhaps more so some than others. And perhaps, you know, even some of us might be going through difficult times at this very moment where the Lord uh, is 
is perhaps seeming distant, perhaps uh, we're in need of some closer contact with him, whether it's, you know, death of a loved one, some significant health issue that we're going through, uh, broken relationships, all these types of things. But I would suggest the person who wrote this, whether it's David or not, was desperate when he wrote this. He was tired and perhaps just weary in general of life. And so as we get our head into this psalm, we, we see that this person was in that situation. And as we make our way through the psalm, we see that there are several reasons given to us as to why he's seeking the Lord's help in this time of trial. And in verse 3, it says, the Lord has been his protector in the past. And I know Keith sort of related that last week in terms of his psalm and uh, the psalmist rec uh, recounting the Lord's help in the past, and so he was reaching out once again. Verse 4, he says, uh, he sees God as the one who is capable to, to provide wonderful protection for him. Verse 7, he has an understanding that God is both loving and faithful, and that he um, wants the best for him. And then finally in verse 8, he looks forward to that time when the Lord will answer his prayer and he'll be able to sing praise to his name. As we read the psalm, it really makes sense if we see it as uh, David because the first four verses, the writer is praying for himself. The next three verses, verses 5 to 8, um, he's praying for the king, and then, and and if we if, if we consider that, say verses six and seven, he's really just praying in the third per person. That it comes together that you know it's it's David because he's actually is the king, and he's also the one crying out from a personal standpoint. The the. Psalm begins with a cry to God, and then it ends with a vow to praise God. And in between, there's these three couplets that uh, I'm not a, a um, person who knows a lot about poetry, but verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 are two separate couplets. Each one uh, is a, a personal prayer of the psalmist, and then verses 6 and 7 is one where the psalmist is praying from a national perspective, and praying for the nation of Israel. And whether the psalmist realized it at the time or at that time or not, that couplet was a prayer really for the messianic reign of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go through the verse, uh, the psalm, verse by verse now, and just have a few comments on each ver on each verse. So the first verse is, "Hear my cry, O God." Listen to my prayer. So this is clearly the cry of a desperate man who really does seem to be at the end of his rope. And his circumstances are really beyond his ability to cope. The, the Hebrew word for that crying is really a loud shout. It's not just, you know, it's not just, you know, somebody quietly in their room asking something of God. It's, it's a heartfelt wrenching uh, uh, call to God. 
the call of a desperate person. And after I read this, I sort of asked myself, have I ever cried out to God in that manner? And in some, to some extent, I think I have. And perhaps most of us who have been in difficult circumstances, difficult situation in our, life, in our lives probably have. And I think it's a good thing. We, see, we read these psalms and we see what the expressions and emotions in these psalms and we realize that God has given these to, to us for a reason. And God's a passionate God and I think he is fine if we're passionate in our cry to him. If you're anything like me, I may know in my head that God hears my prayer because he's told us that we that he will but in my heart i sometimes doubt this and so in this circumstance it's often good where a heartfelt cry voices our inner in our thoughts it allows us to perhaps acknowledge our doubt where there's doubt but at the same time the psalmist is really underscoring his need and dependence on the one who has made promises to him and so we have that first verse that sets us into the, into the psalm. The second verse says, From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And certainly the psalmist may not have been literally at the end of the earth, um, but uh, figuratively or metaphorically he probably was he probably was in the desert he was away from jerusalem if it was david he was in a tough spot he was no longer in his palace he was in a place of discomfort physically but i think perhaps much more um relevantly he, he was in a tough place emotionally and spiritually he was far from his place of comfort when it came to these these things as well. And that's why it says that his heart grows faint. I think we can all perhaps relate to our heart growing faint when we're discouraged, when we're in a, in a place of uh, just despair, I guess, is, is what we see here. Sometimes our heart can grow faint when we are suffering physically, but often it's more just circumstances and emotions and various things that are surrounding us that causes us to have our heart grow faint. So how does the psalmist do, deal with this situation? His cry is, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And I, I love that. I love that phrase that he uses here. It's a strong request. He knows he needs to be led somewhere. He needs to be led out of this place of real difficulty and challenge. And so he's asking God to lead him out of this place to a place that he can't get to on his own and that God is, uh, he needs God's help in getting him there. He's overwhelmed and he needs God's help. And so the psalmist realizes that he needs the protective care of God, that, and he realizes that it's only God that can provide that. It's only once he 
gets up to that higher rock that he's going to be safe from these waves and billows that seem to be washing over him. He believes that God's sovereign protection, his love and his grace and mercy are greater than anything else that he can run to. And so we hear his cry here. In verse 3, he says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. So the reason he's crying out to God is, is very clear here. And again, similar to the psalm that we read last week, the two psalms, we see that God has been faithful to this psalmist in the past, and he has sensed the refuge and the sense of being a strong tower against the foe in the past. And so he's coming to him again, and he's saying, I need help again, just as you've helped me in the past. And so often that's important for us to see and realize where God has blessed us, helped us through struggles in the past, and we come to him again and we say, we need that same help as you gave me at that previous point in time. It reminded me of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the verse well in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, you know, the Lord gave us that simple command. So simple, but only in his loving arms do we find that full rest, that full sense of um, comfort and relief that we cannot get anywhere else. Verse 4 says, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And here I see, you know, we are in the present. We need to live in the present to the, to the largest extent, but we can often be encouraged as we look to that future time when we will have true rest. We know that we won't have complete rest from all the, the burdens and challenges of life here on earth, but it's a good thing to sometimes think towards that heavenly rest that we will have at some point in time. And so, in a sense, the, the psalmist is saying, or just offering up this deep sense of desire to dwell permanently with the Lord and enjoy that permanent rest that he knows he will have at some future date. He's expressing that deep feeling of that. And I, I think it speaks, you know, it talks about a tent here. Certainly, if it was David who was writing this, he would have enjoyed fellowship with the Lord in the tabernacle. And perhaps he's recounting some wonderful times of rest in the tabernacle, worshiping the Lord and being able to enjoy him there. And so he's perhaps thinking of that, but knowing that at some point he will be able to enjoy a more permanent place of refuge directly with the Lord himself. And it talks about being under the shelter of his wings. Verse 5 says, For you, God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. So, 
the psalmist is appealing to God to be able to come in and enjoy his presence. And we don't know the specifics, but he has obviously made a vow to God at some point in his life. And so he's saying, you know, I've made a vow. Uh, I want to come into your presence and rest on that. And it made me think of, you know, us as believers in Jesus Christ and how each of us, in a sense, have made a vow uh, and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that allows us to come into the presence of God because we have trusted Christ in his finished work. And so similarly, um, we see that the psalmist has made a vow. And so he's saying, you know, I've made this vow. And he's also talking about the heritage of those who, who fear your name. And we don't know definitively what he's talking about here, but I assume it's he was uh, an Israelite who uh, the Israelites had a covenant with God and, and that he was uh, within that covenant. And so he's appealing to God on the basis of him being um, an Israelite who was a uh, an Israelite of faith um, and was therefore asking God because of these two things that he be that uh, that um, God would listen and would respond to him. Verses six and seven say, increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. You know, when you first read this and you think, well, this, this is the king, he's kind of a, maybe a selfish prayer. Uh, but as we think about it, it's, it's, it's not at all. David is re requesting this in keeping with the promise that God had made to him. And we read that promise in Psalm, or in Samuel chapter 57, Samuel chapter 7, where uh, God had promised that, you know, his, his kingdom would last forever. And we don't know exactly how David understood that, but certainly praying in keeping with God's promises is a good thing. And here he is indeed doing that. He's praying according to God's will, and that's likewise how we're instructed to pray. He's praying for his kingship to endure forever. So again, I mentioned it earlier, but knowing or unknowingly, uh, David was praying for really the, the, the messianic reign of Jesus Christ at this time as well. Certainly he may have been praying for his own life and, and kingdom to last for uh, an, a further number of years, but I think more importantly he was praying that God's promises according to his kingdom that would last forever is what he was wanting to happen. So the final verse of the psalm says, Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows day after day. So as we remember, the, the, the psalm began really with a tone of 
questioning, of uncertainty, but it closes with a note of confidence here in this, in this verse. David is confident that the Lord will lengthen his days and that it, he will enable him to continue to sing praise to his name. Presumably the vows he speaks of in this verse were perhaps to praise the Lord. And as long as the Lord prolonged his time here on earth, he would do so. After reading this portion of the, of the psalm, it got me thinking about vows and specifically vows to the Lord. And I don't know about you, perhaps you've made uh, specific vows to the Lord, but certainly they're a serious thing to make. And, and no doubt David took them seriously. But again, as we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we need to take that relationship with him seriously and lean on what he has promised as, as believers in Jesus Christ. He's promised us that he will hear our prayers. We see that in John, I think John 9. We see it in all kinds of places where we have promises as children of God, believers in Jesus Christ, um, what we can lean on uh, as children of God. And then to the extent that we fail to trust and follow him in the various areas of our life, we are failing in our commitment to him. But I think one of the things that I took to it, took from this as, as the psalm closed out is that it is certainly a privilege to sing praises to God. And we do that here regularly. And perhaps I know myself sometimes I am singing them with a full heartfelt uh, voice. And at other times I'm probably just moving my lips. But I think we need to be reminded that it's a true blessing to be alive and well and able to sing praises to our Lord and to thank him for each day that he has blessed us with from his hands so that we can do that. So that's Psalm 61. I'm going to read the second Psalm that we have here. I don't have so much time to do this one, so we'll try to move through it fairly quickly. It says, My soul finds rest in God alone. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person 
according to what he has done. So, now this one is a psalm that is specifically attributed to David. And really there's two themes in this, in this psalm. The first one, God alone is the only dependable and safe refuge that we have. And the second one, the world offers us false places of refuge, but these will ultimately fail us. And as we go through the psalm, we see that David addresses four different audiences. He addresses himself, his enemies, people who follow God, and then he addresses God himself at the end. So he works his way through each of these audiences to drive home his point and to make his argument. And he kind of reasserts himself every time, after every time, really on three occasions, that God is his rock, his salvation, his refuge, and his fortress. He begins by committing himself to this truth, that all that he has is found in God, and that he has to put all his dependence on him. And when he does that, he will not be shaken. He next talks to his enemies in verses 3 and 4, and he more or less speaks about what they are up to. And I think we've all faced enemies in a sense in our lives, whether they, you know, when we were young, perhaps uh, various people that uh, picked on us. Uh, you know, we could think of places of work where we, we had challenges with people who were perhaps enemies. We can think of various situations and things in the world and I think that in many senses, the world can be a nasty place in various ways. And at times we probably have felt, as David describes it, as a tottering fence or a leaning wall. And our enemies, those out in the world, may be looking to just kind of give us a kick and knock us down. And as we consider that, you know, in some cases, we'll, we'll get into it a bit later, but really, when we have a reliance on people, we're probably going to be disappointed. And we'll see this as we get into this a little bit more. But after speaking of the challenges of the world, David addresses himself. And again, in verses, I think it's five and Six reassures his need uh, to have the Lord as his foundation. But he also stakes another claim. He says that his honor comes from God and not from man in verse 7. And so in other words, he's saying that he's not there to seek man's approval, but rather God's approval. And all his decisions and all the things that he does in life, he's determined to look to God for his approval. And as I was thinking about that, I can't say that that has always been my uh, way of thinking um, and as much as it should have been. And then second, David says that both his salvation and his honor depend on God. So David is depending not on his works for salvation, but on God's grace. 
and that his, he was going to make all his decisions and all his, um, everything he does would be based on what God would want him and what God would approve of in his life. And certainly that's a wonderful kind of stake to put in the ground in the ground in terms of our relationship and our desire to please God rather than man and to depend on God's grace rather than anything that we can uh, do to please him. Next, David addresses the people of God. So he doesn't want to just encourage himself in these things with regards to uh, the need to take refuge in the Lord, but he wants to to encourage all people who are believers in the one true God and tells them not to be drawn into these false places of refuge, but to stick to the one true refuge that is theirs. So certainly David continues to drive home about the one true refuge being God, but I want to dwell or just spend some time on the, the false refuges uh, that he speaks of, the false places of refuge, and he speaks of two in this passage. And the first one, again, we talked a little bit about it, is people. And we've probably all experienced disappointment in people at various times in our life. And, you know, sometimes that could be at work. Sometimes it could be in a family situation. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend where we've been perhaps betrayed or disappointed in some way. And when we think about David, he certainly had many of those circumstances. Again, we talked about Saul. We talked about Absalom. And then, you know, another example would be Ahithophel, who was his kind of advisor who turned and went over to the other side and was uh, betrayed him and was uh, advising Absalom. So he would be very well versed in realizing that people in many cases can be a disappointment and we don't want to have our, our full confidence in the same way that we would in the Lord in people. I don't want to suggest that we don't have some confidence in, in people here on earth. We certainly need, our, as Christians, we need our brothers and sisters around us, and, and they can certainly be a help and, and a, um, a real comfort to us. But we can't place our full defense dependence on them the way that we can on the Lord. If we do this, they really will become an idol in our lives. And I think, you know, even our spouses can become an idol or anybody. And I think of the situation where um, couples have, one couple is in the couple in the marriage has denied the faith. And then the other couple is, the person in the marriage has sort of fallen away as well. And then I've seen other couples where, you know, one has fallen away from the faith, but the other has continued in their relationship with the Lord. And, and just one example that I thought of is where we have to be careful in all situations, just pointing out that one. But um, we don't want our whole world to collapse 
simply because of the failure of one person in our life. And we see that sometimes in churches. We can have a, a pastor that falls and people uh, are disappointed and fall away. Whatever the case might be, the only true and uh, perfect refuge is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so David in this psalm is pointing that out. He says that even in verse 9, he talks about high-born men, you know, people who've come from the high class or low-born men, they all are going to die. It doesn't matter where we come from, what the case might be. We are all but a breath, he says here, and we could have our dependence on someone and then they might pass away. And so our dependence has to be ultimately on the, on the Lord. The second false refuge spoken of is in verse, verses 10 and 11. He speaks about or against dishonest means of accumulating wealth. He talks about extortion or theft as uh, being obviously wrong. But he specifically warns against setting our hearts on riches. And it's certainly easy for us to do this. And so we need to be aware of that trap. We live in a world that I think in many situations or many, in, in many senses, worships wealth. And certainly people who are wealthy are often put up on a pedestal. And this verse isn't saying that the accumulation of, wrong, of wealth is wrong per se, although it certainly could be. But ra rather it's the attitude that we have towards it that is often wrong and can cause us to have an unhealthy relationship with it. David says specifically, do not set your hearts on riches. And this is very much in line with what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in Matthew 6, 24, he says that we can cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money. So we understand that if we have riches and our hearts are set on them, then we will not have our heart set on the things of the Lord. Jesus spoke these words as part of his Sermon on the Mount, in which he also said that it was foolish to store up our treasures on earth here, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Rather, he urges us to store up our treasures in heaven where it will last forever. The obstacles that prevent us from wise investment, it's saying here is our heart. Our heart can be our obstacle to where we invest our time and our energy and our resources. And if our heart's in the wrong place, then we won't make the right investment. So like Jesus did, you know, several thousand years later, David is clearly pointing out that wealth is another false refuge that we can put our trust in, but which will ultimately ultimately fail us. Now, I don't know if you remember, but I earlier mentioned that David addresses four audiences in relations to the in relation to that uh, profound truth that God is our safe, the only safe and reliable refuge. Um, so far, I've only mentioned three. I mentioned enemies, himself, and other 
uh, followers of God. But the fourth audience he addresses is God himself. And this is found in verses 11 and 12. And here he says that God spoke once, but David heard two things. And we don't know how this came to be, whether God gave him a revelation or whether he spoke to him through, I was thinking maybe through the, through the, um, through Samuel, the prophet Samuel, perhaps. But anyway, it seems like God had somehow provided him with this specific information. And David is very emphatic, bringing forth two key simple points. And he says that God is loving and God is strong. And these two truths here are clearly connected. God has the strength and might to protect. And that's what we need in terms of a refuge. But the other thing that he has is that he's a, a, a God of love. And he will faithfully love his people. So not only does he have the strength to protect us, but it, it's a protection that is bathed in love. And so we have that wonderful picture of this one who wants to protect us, wants to be our refuge, wants to be um, our protection, and has these loving arms that want to provide that for us. David finally concludes by saying that surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. And certainly David is not suggesting some kind of works-based salvation. He couldn't because he's just been telling us how God alone was his salvation and refuge. Um, he did not depend on himself and realized, his, realized that doing so was, was hopeless. But rather, David here is stressing the importance of putting one's faith and dependence on God and not on oneself. So what have we done with God's offer of love and protection? And here he's saying, we'll be rewarded according to what we have done. If we've run to that love and protection, then he's going to afford it to us. Dependence on oneself for salvation in David's time was just as serious as it is today. He had a deep and enduring faith in the God he knew. We know that of David. For us, we must put our trust in Jesus Christ, God's perfect provision of a savior and refuge in order to avoid God's judgment. Any dependence on ourselves for this would be just as foolish for us today as it was for David 3,000 years ago. So I hope you've enjoyed these, this little bit of thought on these two psalms. I certainly have, and 